Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games, a documentary-style podcast about video games and the video game industry, as they were in the past, and how they came to be the way they are today. My name is Richard Moss, and in this episode we're exploring the world of Microsoft games in a time before Xbox. Microsoft was involved with games to some degree from the very beginning. I'm a little hazy on exactly which games came first from Microsoft, but Bill was always a supporter of games. You know, he was like most most geeky people. You know, he liked anything that had to do with computers and games were one of the things. This is Ed Freeze. If you know your Xbox history, you might remember that he's the father of Microsoft's game console division. And he was head of Microsoft Game Studios until his departure in January 2004. But Ed had actually joined the company way back in 1985 as a summer intern. He had been paying his own way through college, working during semesters, first at a games company that he'd started at back in high school, and then, well, I'll let him tell the story. I graduated from high school in 1982, and I went to college, and I continued to work for this company, Ramox. And in 1984, they went out of business along with a lot of the other game industry. And, you know, the whole famous meltdown in 1984. And so at that time, I was halfway through college getting my computer science degree and needed to get a real job. And um, so I, I, um, I wrote some stuff. Uh, basically just to show off what I could do and got hired by the uh, computer center and got put in charge of running one of their um, VAX computers. Basically a a Unix machine, a mini computer. So I worked on that. That became, you know, that's how I paid for college. But then when I'd come home during the summer, I'd need a summer job. And um, between my junior and senior years that summer, I applied to Microsoft because they were one of the computer companies in my home area where, near where I live. And they were pretty small back then in 85. And my, they liked my resume, and so they flew me up for an interview and offered me a job. And I worked there as a summer intern, summer of 85. They liked the job that I did, and so they offered me a full-time job when I graduated in 86. Um, and that's, uh, that's how I started at the company. He was hired into the Microsoft Office team as a programmer on Excel. Now, Ed's story is almost as interesting as the twisting path that games took at the company, Microsoft, on the road to Xbox. But I'm going to have to hold off on sharing most of this story for future bonus material or even full episodes, or else I'll never get this finished. So, confession time. When I decided... I wanted to do a story on Microsoft games before the Xbox. I thought it would be simple. Flight Simulator, Age of Empires, Close Combat. Then you've got the built-in games we've all played like Minesweeper and Solitaire. Maybe the Windows Entertainment Packs, a few games we've all forgotten about. Straightforward, right? I I thought they kind of half-heartedly dipped their toes into this world and they helped a few games with potential mainstream appeal become crossover hits. But it turns out there's heaps more going on than all of that. There's a huge story here, far bigger than I could do in the podcast in its current format. 
So instead of doing a, a full Microsoft Games before the Xbox thing, which was the original plan, I had to focus my angle. I'd still like to cover the whole history, but for now I've had to pick out just a few things that I thought were interesting from merely the first half of the Ed Freeze era. Now that's roughly the mid-90s through to the late 90s. So it's just about five years or so. That's it. That's all I could really fit in. There's a story to tell before this era. It's a pretty much decade-long odyssey that really laid the foundations for everything that came after. And, and that's the story where Flight Simulator came into it. But this is a story that I have to save for another time. Because there's just not room here. So instead, what you're about to hear is a selection of material from my interviews with Ed Freeze and three of the other guys who worked with him at Microsoft. Plus uh, a little extra snippet from an interview I did for an Ars Technica article on the history of Age of Empires. So this is the story, or part of it, of how Microsoft got games. All right, let's get back to Ed Freeze and continue actually telling the story. I was the youngest of seven programmers working on the first version of Excel for Windows. And it was it was awesome, frankly. I mean, yeah, I wasn't making games, but uh, it was a, a small team, really talented people, uh, a really tough challenge to try to... Microsoft wasn't the biggest personal computer software company back then. Lotus was, so... We were just seven guys trying to beat um, the biggest, the number one product from the biggest software company there was, Lotus 123. And that was a cool challenge. Fast forward about five years. By this point, the lead programmer, he moves across to Microsoft Word as their new development manager. And he does this job for another five years or so. Then he's offered a chance to do something different. So by late 95, beginning of 96, I got to take over Microsoft's game business, which people, you know, you can hear me in a million other interviews, but people tried really hard to talk me out of, but I really wanted to do the job. They told me I was committing career suicide. Like, why would you leave something as important as office to do something nobody cares about? (laughs) Yeah, whatever. But anyway, uh, you know, when I took over that group, there were only about 50 full-time employees and they had just acquired BAO, the company that makes Flight Simulator. We're in the process of moving them out to, uh, to Redmond to, to work as part of our team. So that was one of the first things I got to do was help bring those guys out and get them, get them settled in and working on the next version of Flight Simulator. And Flight Simulator was you know, far and away our biggest source of revenue and, and would continue to be that for almost two years until we launched uh, Age of Empires. Flight Simulator was, at that time, the most popular computer entertainment program in the world. And it had been so pretty much since it first came out on the the TRS-80 and Apple II computers in 1980. And it would continue to be the most popular pretty much all the way through until the early 2000s. You can probably imagine, as its publisher, Microsoft was raking in money from sales of the the core product, as well as the scenery and expansion packs, of which there were many. I mean, I couldn't have run that business otherwise. You know, all, all the 
everything that I took out of Flight Simulator basically went into all the acquisitions that I did, whether it was, you know, buying Fasa, you know, or Access Software or Ensemble Studios. That was really the, the driver of the early growth of, of Flight Simulator was reinvesting the profits that we had on Flight Simulator into expanding our lineup. Because basically, as long as I was, you know, more or less breaking even with the games group, I was ignored by the rest of the company. And that was a really nice position to be in because then I could just continue to do what I wanted, which is try to, try to you know, uh, raise Microsoft's profile as a game company. The good news there was that at that point, there was pretty much nowhere to go except up. I mean, Microsoft didn't really have a profile as a games company. Case in point, when Ed took over the group, it was actually called the Kids and Games Group. It was part of the company's entertainment division. That was, those were my cards for the first year. Kids and Games. It wasn't even Games First, it was Kids First. <laughs> And, uh, and so, yeah, it took, it took a while. Uh, there was actually a much more of the focus of the company at that time was CD-ROMs and doing, the, you know, the, Bill and other people thought, oh, there's going to be this new revolution around CD-ROMs and everybody's going to want to use this new amazing technology, bring information at your fingertips. So it'll be like you could go to a museum, but just, just from your machine at home, right? That kind of thing. Again, you got to remember you're in a pre-internet world, so... But yeah, games were sort of tacked onto the side of that when I, when I started. Ed likens his sudden freedom moving from the pressured environment of the office team over to a group that nobody, either in or outside of the company, cared about, to being like a kid in a candy store. All of a sudden, I could just do what I wanted to do. And that was really, it took me a while to, to realize that was the case, you know. I had I'd only been in the job a couple of weeks, and they had they had had for a while a trip planned to go to Japan. They're like, Ed, you should come to Japan with us. Sure, I'd love to go to Japan. Only ever been to Japan once, and so you know we all went to Japan and we met with all these famous developers at Sega and Capcom and Tecmo and other and uh, Konami. And, you know, I got to see like the first DDR machine when it was under development. I got to see Biohazard when it was under development, and just. It was awesome, you know, and I came back thinking about all the great games I had played and all the great game designers. As it happens, Microsoft had just signed on to be publisher on a strategy game. It was still in the early stages of development, and it was being made by an IT consulting firm called Ensemble, which had picked up one of the best designers in the industry to help shape their vision. Really, Age of Empires was the first thing where we met some folks that had a prototype that was compelling and had sort of the right cast of, of people. They had a lot of people who knew the industry at Ensemble, but they also had Ruth Shelley, who had been with Microprose. And, and we liked that combination. And that the prototype they showed us was surprisingly compelling. At the time, what they had was they had their little 3D isometric world, a pre-rendered isometric world, and they had a little caveman and a campfire and the, their little tent huts. And all you could really do was hunt deer and chop wood and collect resources. But it was weirdly addicting in that very, very nascent sort of primitive form. This is Stuart Mulder. He was what Microsoft called a product unit manager. 
which is a sort of combined production and business management role. So started at Microsoft in 94 and uh, with the group of about 30 people. They were making games, but the games they had were not were not games for gamers. They were a flight sim, they had a golf game, they had a retro arcade game. Uh, they, had, they had never successfully built or published a game for hardcore gamers. Stuart's first mandate was to fix that. Now, unlike Ed Freeze, Stuart Mulder had come into this role straight from the games industry. He'd spent the previous few years at one of the PC games publishing giants, Sierra Online. And he very quickly saw that Microsoft was far from captivated by the game space. And they actually didn't care about games. Even though the game's business was larger than any of the other things that they had, they were involved with in that division. They were involved with education software. They had the disastrous Microsoft Bob project. They, were, they had been spending a lot of resources on. And to them, games was just a sideshow. It was a consumer category they felt obligated to participate in. But they really just didn't pay attention very much. And it was really only because of Bill that there was any attention on it at all. Bill recognized, Bill Gates, that games drove technology for PCs. And so games were interesting, at least from that perspective. So just to pause the story there for a quick moment, I want to let you know that I have a a new book that I'm working on. It's called Shareway Heroes, Independent Games at the Dawn of the Internet. And it's all about indie games back in the 1980s and the 90s, and specifically about the games that were distributed via a a very unique business model that involves uh, giving away part or all of the product free, and then asking people to send you money if they like it. Pretty similar to how I make this podcast. It's how id Software, the, the guys who made Doom and Wolfenstein 3D and Quake, got their start. It's how Epic, the makers of Fortnite and Unreal Engine, got their start. And uh, also, there was a company called Apogee. That was a big deal back in the 90s that published everything via this business model. And there are lots and lots of cool other games on, on DOS and Amiga and Mac and other platforms. It was a melting pot of cool ideas interesting innovation and uh, just people thinking differently and trying things. It's a really interesting space and I'm trying to explore it in this book. So you can find out more and make a pledge to our crowdfunding campaign at unbound.com slash books slash shareware heroes. There'll be a link to that in the show notes at lifeandtimes.games. Okay, back to the show. We were, I, I think, uh, at that time, to show you how small we really were, we didn't even have like a, a dedicated marketing team. We were brought aboard where you we had to look at the products that we were going to do and even come up with, surprisingly, the name. This is Ed Ventura, who, like Stuart, was hired out of the games industry in 1994. His background was... Uh, console publishing to build up Microsoft's entertainment product line. He worked in product planning. His job was to find developers they could work with. Well, first, we kind of start off a little bit more scientific because uh, the business background we had 
really was looking at titles that were interesting at that time. And so there are different uh, categories of games, right? So we were to build our portfolio, we would look at the various markets that were available that were big at the time. So real-time strategy was an interesting category or strategy in general. Real-time strategy was becoming the more popular thing because people wanted to see movement. So in addition to looking at the various categories for us to try to fill that was popular at that time, we were also looking for things that could show off the platform. For us, I mean, it was obviously the PC, but we needed to make sure that it was also trying to do things that might show off some of Microsoft's peripherals. Like keyboards and mice, that kind of thing. Plus anything that would shift attention from DOS to Windows 95. They really wanted everyone to get on the latest operating system, even for their playtime. And on top of these core mandates, they tried to play around with what was possible. Here's Ed Freeze again. You know, some of the first games that we came out with after I took over, we were kind of trying to push a little bit what we could do within the Microsoft brand. So we, that first year we came out with a couple games. One was called um, Hellbender, and we wanted to see if we could put the word hell on a box next to Microsoft and get away with it. <laughs> um, and the, the other game that I remember from that time was called Deadly Tide. And that, does, they, that may not sound that, that, that uh, scary, but Steve Ballmer uh, uh, worked for Procter & Gamble before he came to Microsoft. And Tide is their big, big, big uh, laundry brand. So, you know, Procter & Gamble has Tide and we're putting out a product called Deadly Tide. You know? So anyway, those are things that actually had to go get all the way, go up to Bill Gates to get approved. But, but he tended to support us and let the games group do what the games group needed to do. We, we certainly couldn't have done an M-rated title back then. But, uh, you know, we, we, were, we were basically proving that we could, if, if nothing else, put things out under the Microsoft brand and not get the brand into trouble. As the guy in charge of the whole Microsoft games group, Ed didn't have time to find all of these games himself. He relied on guys like Ed Ventura and Stuart Mulder to help him, to basically act as talent scouts. To do that, and to help raise Microsoft's gaming profile within the industry, both as a platform and as a publisher, they'd fly around the country meeting developers and talking at conferences and other events, forming relationships. I was always a believer in working with the talent, not with like trying to drive our own agenda. So it was, you know, what can we do with Chris Taylor? Let's hear what Chris wants to build and let's see if, you know, if it'll work for us and if we can be supportive and help him make that happen. Help him not just financially, but through the user research that I mentioned to you before, through the, through the support and testing, through international localization, distribution, just all the different ways that we could help bring his product to market and be successful. That was, you know, that was really how we tried. That was really, I guess, our core strategy was was to try to be um, a team that people wanted to work with. All the while, they carried with them the baggage of the Microsoft brand, both good and bad, which led to some interesting misconceptions. 
Here's something Age Vampires designer Rick Goodman said to me when I asked him about Ensemble's decision to publish through Microsoft. Well, we didn't know what to expect, and we had other publishers that we were evaluating. Uh, We made the decision to go with Microsoft because at the time the saying was they could put a rock inside a box with a game package and that would sell 400,000 copies, and that made us feel good. So as, as things proceeded, we realized that the games that they were coming out with during development did not prove that to be true. Age of Empires development took a few years, during which period Microsoft released some games that sold well, like Close Combat, and various games that did not sell well at all. And when you sign up with Microsoft, your assumption is, oh, these people are, are godlike. And it turned out that they were mortals like us. You know, it felt like people thought we had endless resources to do stuff, right? We would market things like crazy to make them successful. But but in the gaming world, the truth is products that weren't that good didn't sell that much, right? I mean, that you're just not going to buy it. I mean, regardless of who it came from. I would say uh, my feelings really would have been more like the opposite because for someone who came on the outside from console gaming to PC gaming at the time, we had the hardest time to to convince game developers to work with us. I think that's more, if you if you want a different perspective, I would say that is more the truth. Because I had to sign a lot of these deals. Um, you know, I think... I think people looked at the Microsoft brand and it was huge, you know, at that time, but, but gamers also understood that, well, well, what did Microsoft do in the gaming business at that time? Well, relatively nothing. I mean, outside of flight simulator. See that they were just exploring games. They didn't have a firm strategy. They didn't have a good system of evaluating games. Uh, lucky for us, they would never, never have partnered with us if they had known what they were doing. Uh, and so we were exploring and they were exploring. And that's the truth. That's why I call it the wild, wild west. That's part of what made working in the Microsoft Games Group so freeing and exciting for everyone, but also challenging. In, you know, organizationally, in the very early days of Microsoft you know, Games, there weren't necessarily a lot of people who could just sort of look at a game uh, from from personal experience, so like I published thirty games for EA, and I I can play a game and look at it and go, yes, this is going to be this is going to find an audience, and maybe it'll be a huge audience, and maybe it'll be a small audience. But if we manage our investment correctly, we will not lose money on this. We will, you know, it, it will it will review well, and it will find an audience, and we will hopefully make a little bit of money at it. But uh, like I said, there weren't a lot of people walking around who had that experience uh, in the early days. This is John Kimmick, another Microsoft veteran who moved over to games around a decade into his career at the company. So my background was um, I joined Microsoft in 1988 out of grad school. He'd done a master's in computer science. He specialized in object-oriented language development. So sent my resume to at least 100 companies all over the place. And uh, the, the first one that came back was from Microsoft. And 
I looked at it and it's like, oh, they're in Washington. So I was going to school in Ohio State, in the middle of the country, and I grew up in Pennsylvania. And I was like, oh, they're in Washington. So it'll be just down the road from where I grew up. I uh, didn't really realize that it was like on the entire other end of the country until I got the plane ticket. I was like, oh, well, this isn't, wasn't, isn't what I was expecting. And so I hop on the plane, fly out here, and it's, you know, get here. It's pouring down rain. It's overcast, dark, miserable. And so that was my introduction to Seattle. John helped Microsoft build their first C++ compiler. Then, after four years in the languages group, he switched to hardware and then bounced around various other groups like interactive television and kids in games. But not the same kids in games that Ed Fries took over. Microsoft, like many big companies, has a lot of teams and groups and divisions. And sometimes they overlap. And then I finally wound up in games in 97, something like that. I joined the games group the year that the first Age of Empires launched. So that summer, I think it was like around that summer, I joined the group. And then a couple months later, uh, the first Age launched. By this point, he'd traded in his programmer's hat for a business development one. And so that consisted of building relationships with developers all over the country, all over the world, trying to find developers who had interesting, at that time, PC games for us to publish. Ed had a pot of money that he could deploy against acquiring the rights to publish PC games. And so it was our mission, folks like me and Ed Ventura, who was my boss at this point for a while, to go off and do that. Okay, let's step back a moment. This is around 1997, 98. Microsoft is no longer the new kid on the block in PC games publishing with the boxes that look like they've been put in the wrong section of the store. They've proven themselves. They put out Close Combat in 1996. It's a real-time tactics war game where you direct a a unit of soldiers through the six weeks of skirmishes after the invasion of Normandy in World War II. It sold 200,000 units and reviewed exceptionally well kicking off a franchise that now spans 16 games. They'd maybe not had the greatest success with most of their other games, but they had at least managed decent sales numbers and reviews on a few of them, like Microsoft Golf and a claymation adventure game called The Neverhood. And they'd covered multiple genres. And now, to really show they weren't clueless, or or they weren't clueless anymore, They just published Age of Empires, a real-time strategy game set in ancient times where you build up and manage a tribe as it advances through the ages of ancient history. Stone Age, Tool Age, Bronze Age, and Iron Age. You collect resources and fight other players on these very beautiful, colourful maps. Age of Empires was a huge hit with a projected lifetime sales of about 430,000 copies, they were already expecting it to do well. But they rapidly advanced beyond that to hit a million, and then keep going. By the beginning of 2000, they had sold more than 3 million copies. Age of Empires was one of the best-selling computer games in the world. So now, basically, they had two of the best-selling products. 
in the entertainment space, Age of Empires and Flight Simulator. And for this, we're hitting two different computer game markets and knocking it out of the park. They had even caught the attention of the doubters inside Microsoft, who had been dubious about this game sideshow business, who thought it was a waste of time. Here's Stuart Mulder again. Bill didn't come in and shower us all with gold or anything, but the biggest effect it had, and people can argue this, but I'm, I'm going to put this forward as thesis. I believe that there were two big successes that had to happen in Microsoft for the Xbox console to happen. One success was the success of DirectX, which showed that we had the chops on the operating system side to deliver technology that made it possible to build great games. And that's what DirectX was. Then on the other side, we had to show that we had the ability as a first-party publisher to deliver a hit game aimed at core gamers, because that's the people who buy and play console games. And so it was critical that DirectX was successful, and it was. And it was also critical that we had a million-selling-plus successful game published by Microsoft that we had chosen, selected, and shepherded the market and made successful at that level. Uh, because you can't have a console without a, a, a credible first-party portfolio. You can't do it on third-party alone. And so in a lot of ways, I think the success of Age 1 and then Age 2, which was even more successful, was part of what made it possible for us to then go buy Bungie, bring Halo over, greenlight the Xbox console, you know, and build that entire business. If, those, if, if age doesn't happen as a success at the level it succeeded, I don't think that happens. I don't think Bill and Steve pulled the trigger because it was a close run thing as it was for them to pull the trigger on the Xbox. Age of Empires taught Microsoft how to find great games, how to see that these great games get through to completion. And also, it showed them that they could really go far in this games business if they were willing to invest in it. And that is what they did. They invested billions of dollars. They didn't just make the Xbox game console to go up against Sony's PlayStation 2 and Nintendo's GameCube in a a project that took years of work and really didn't start reaping dividends until the following product after the Xbox, the Xbox 360. They also spent big acquiring several major development studios. Studios like... The Nintendo Golden Child Rare, the Halo creators Bungie, who I might add were Mac-focused through all of the 90s, the MechWarrior creators Fasa, and a celebrated British studio called Lionhead. And all of this stuff, the acquisitions, the games publishing, and the project to make Xbox that followed a bit after this story I've been telling, That all set the foundation for what is now a key pillar in Microsoft's business. Not bad for a division that, barely more than 20 years ago, was a little sideshow to the Microsoft Office and the Windows operating system juggernauts, and that was comparatively understaffed and underfunded, fumbling its way along on the pure enthusiasm and dedication of its games-loving staff who had a point to prove. Here's Ed Ventura to take us out. The hits are really what provide the respect, right? Because everybody's working hard 
this wouldn't just be for games, but if you take a look at other groups that lived and died at Microsoft, you know, well, you know, Zoom, for example, right? You know, where was that? Where is that today? You know, that doesn't even exist. So Microsoft's uh, culture, you know, uh, is not unlike, you know, other cultures that what I probably would consider either evolved from Microsoft and Apple to what, you know, companies like Amazon, Google, you know, these today. It's a very pessimistic environment, right? I don't mean that in a mean-spirited way, but I think there's always the, you know, what have you really done? You know, uh, you don't get respect for nothing. I would certainly point out to uh, employees that didn't work in games that, that played Age of Empires, for example, and thought it was awesome, that would come up and say, wow, that is just, you know, I love this game. This is great. You change attitudes because we, we um, you know, we represented the company really well. There's a source of pride, you know, in any company and Microsoft is no different that people who feel like, well, we're the ones that are kind of holding up the company, right? Office. If you were in Office or in Windows, you were like, you were, you were everything. That was the business. Everything else was a sideshow you know, until you really gained enough attention through success, I mean, that made it a, a pillar of business. The Life and Times of Video Games is written, edited, scored, and produced entirely by me. If you enjoyed the show, it'd be a big help if you could rave about it on social media, share it on forums, write about it on your website, your blog, or whatever you might think of, anything that might get me new listeners. And I'm always open to donations, either one-time or recurring donations through paypal.me slash mossassi, or monthly recurring pledges on patreon.com slash life and times of video games. And if you pledge on Patreon, depending on what your level is, you might also get some bonus material like extra sound bites and interviews, behind the scenes stuff and the opportunity to, to vote on future direction of the show or on future episodes. And you can even get your name in the credits. Like a few current backers of mine. Wade Trigascus, Simon Moss, Vivek Mohan. Thanks guys for believing in the show and helping keep this thing rolling. And as always, you can find more episodes and links to anything I mention here at lifeandtimes.games. I'll be back soon with the final episode of the season, and then I'll have a chat with my Patreon backers to decide how the show is going to continue from there. Until then, my name is Richard Moss. Thanks for listening.